Hello! Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB Reading Series. Fantastic Fiction is a monthly speculative fiction reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month, hosted by Ellen Datlow and me, Matthew Kressel. We spotlight well-known and up-and-coming science fiction, fantasy, and horror authors, and admission is always free. We publish a monthly podcast and video so people who can't attend the in-person event can still enjoy the readings. If you'd like to support the series, you can donate at kgbfantasticfiction.org slash support. Anyway, on to the show. everybody. Good. Hello. Uh, I'm Teresa DeLucci, standing in for Matthew Kressel while he's out of town, and welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. This is, right. this is New York City's longest-running monthly speculative fiction reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month here at the famous KGB bar, or virtually depending on the ebbs and flow of the pandemic. <laughs> Begun in the late 90s by Terry Bisson and Alice K. Turner, this series has been co-hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel since 2008. KGB has been a gracious host for 20 years, never charging a cover, so we ask attendees to please show their support by ordering a hard or soft drink and tipping your hardworking bartender. And please join our mailing list at kgbfantasticfiction.org. A little rundown of how this will go. Each reader will read for about 20 minutes with a short break in between. And our first reader tonight is Robert Freeman Wexler. Robert Freeman Wexler's most recent book is the short story collection Undiscovered Territories. His new novel, The Silverberg Business, is forthcoming from Small Beer Press in August of this year. His previous books include the novel The Painting and the City. So please welcome Robert. Thank you. not to touch the microphone because it'll fall over. Being very Yes. <clears throat> and um, last time I read here there wasn't a microphone, so this is much better. <clears throat> I'm reading from my forthcoming novel, The Silverberg Business, which she just told you about, so I won't say anything else. I woke from another swimming on land dream, the kind where I'm walking, no hurry, until I can't remember how. By the end, I'm on my stomach, unable to move. At least it hadn't been the other kind of dream, where I'm after someone, or someone is after me, or something. It's almost on me, and I can't shoot my gun. No, that's not it. Shooting is complicated. The trigger, I don't know how to use it. I scream, the bullet's out. They either miss or have no effect. They don't stop what's after me. I always wake up yelling, embarrassing when you're not alone. Morning sun slashed through the window. Rolling away from the glare didn't help. Sleep would not come back. I worked to recall where I was. Floral wallpaper, chipped wash basin, 
the room I took last night, Delmonico Hotel, Victoria, Texas. <clears throat> I got out of bed, splashed my face at the wash basin, pissed in the pot, got dressed, ending with a brown cotton sack coat to cover the bulldog revolver in its shoulder harness. I carried my hat, a brown derby, down to the hotel's restaurant. From the doorway, I studied the room, one quick glance, as I've done in many rooms for the last ten years. Single diner, man, dressed for town, dark vest over white shirt. The shirt looked new. He wasn't heavy and he wasn't thin. I didn't need to examine him or anyone in the hotel, but that's what I do. Studying a room is a practice I can't stop, because there are times when doing it keeps me alive. The waitress was small with dark hair and a smile that told me nothing, except she was awake and doing what she needed to do, which at this moment was take me to a table. She sat me near a window. I watched the flow of pedestrians, a stout woman with two children, a grinning old man covered in soot, a young red-headed woman with the man who had the weathered face of a rancher. A man glanced in. He wasn't old, but his eyebrows and hair were bone white. His rusted eyes stared into mine. I froze, unable to act, unable to save myself. A wave crashed the shore, then another, waves that towered, that smote the sand with a noble force. I tried to run, couldn't. Tried to crawl, couldn't. The hammer of wave crushed my shell. Millions of tiny crystal shards mixed with spray-clouded air. Daylight faded. The spent wave departed, leaving sand sculpted into fantastic spirals and a stench, rot, the kind of rot you get after a storm passes and the sun bakes whatever the waves dredged from the depths. Another scent came to me, earthy, earthy and pleasant. My hand touched warmth, a mug. The blessed waitress had brought coffee. I drank. Unease receded. Waves subsided to harmless foam. The dining room was clean and dry. Outside the windows, sunshine and no white-haired man. The waitress returned to refill my coffee cup and take my order. (coughs) Stupidity began to lift. She had also brought the local paper, Victoria Advocate, Saturday, October 27th, 1888. Today was Monday, the 28th. I perused a section called The Outside World, an interesting jumble of both foreign and domestic news for Victoria readers, in which I learned things that included this item. L. L. Herman, a New York money changer and banker, has disappeared with $5,000 belonging to Polish Jews. 
The money had been entrusted to his care and was to have been sent to England. That last item, I'd been hired to investigate a similar crime. A group calling themselves the Romania America Relocation Movement had solicited donations for moving Romanian Jewish refugees to a new colony on the Texas coast. Money accumulated in an account in New York. Nathan Silverberg, the man who presented the plan to donors, had been sent to Victoria carrying a bank draft. Silverberg was to open an account, look at property with local representatives, and purchase land for the colony. But the settlement was a sham. Silverberg was a well-known and respected member of the Jewish community in New York, which didn't mean he wasn't part of the swindle but it was more likely that the swindlers used him to get the money. Either way, I would have to find him. Breakfast over, I set the derby on my head and went outside. Next stop was Sibley and Sons Bank, where Silverberg was to have deposited the money. I gave the clerk my Llewellyn detective agency card. I sent a telegram that I would be coming, he said. You sure don't look Irish, Mr. Shannon, he said. He went to find the manager. <clears throat> I've been told I don't look Jewish either. No doubt some people can see the secret marks on my forehead, but most take me as a regular American. I don't feel like one. I doubt Jews will ever feel they belong with regular Americans. No matter how much freedom there may be here, someone will eventually come along to shove us back into our ghetto. The family name was Hanun, changed for convenience by the bilge rats in charge of immigration when my grandparents arrived in New York. <clears throat> um, now I'm skipping ahead to several chapters. Um, Shannon has uh, bought a horse and pack mule named Blue Swamp and Patience and ridden out into the semi-wilderness of the Gulf Coast looking for Silverberg. <clears throat> Though the time wasn't much past noon, the sky had darkened. Not the dark of a storm, but as if a bloody veil hung between me and the sun, Reddish light washed the salt cedars and cactus. Blue swamp stopped, and tapping with my heels couldn't get him moving again. Ahead in the dimness, a shape emerged, like a haystack or a round hut, indistinct with distance in this crazy light. I turned blue swamp away from the shape. A few yards back, I dismounted and forced myself into the red air. When I drew close enough to identify the shape, it turned out to be a sand hill, one sand hill alone, looking at Matagorda Bay. A sand hill on the bay side was unexpected, and a sand hill alone felt wrong. The wrongness increased as I moved around it. Sand hills form, 
blow apart, reform, eventually becoming immobilized by growth of sea oats, goatweed, and other plants. This one was crusty, bare, more like sandstone than sand, and the front looked sculpted. Curl of lip, open mouth, deep eye holes, a rotting animal festered in the mouth. Then I found the body. I saw the skull first. A spar from some long-dead sailing vessel had been driven deep into the sand. Someone had attached the skull to the end of the spar. The bone was clean of gore. The rest of the skeleton lay nearby, scraps of cloth hanging here and there. A few feet away was a depression that might have been a grave, dug poorly and with haste, the body dragged out by coyotes and dealt with by them, buzzards, ants, maggots, and Texas sun. I groped through the remnants of a coat and found an inner pocket with an envelope addressed to Martin Silverberg. I didn't find a wallet or the gold watch he was supposed to have. <clears throat> the body was beyond interest to scavengers, but I couldn't leave it the way it was. I widened and deepened the depression with my camp shovel and dragged the remnants in. Meaning to lay it with the other remains, I lifted the skull from its perch. Pausing, I looked into its sockets. I have an idea, Mr. Silverberg. How about you come with me, help track down these gents who killed you? I filled in the hole and stood beside the mound of sand, mumbling fragments of recalled Hebrew. When I got back to my horses, I rearranged the saddlebags to make room for the skull. <clears throat> the wind had picked up, bringing sleet, I rode up a lane I had seen earlier, passing cattle with a curvy blob brand that reminded me of the leering sand hill. The lane took me to a small house constructed from warped, uneven boards and hunks of sod. <clears throat> when I got close enough, I hollered a greeting. The door cracked and a face looked out, along with a rifle barrel. Any chance of dinner and a dry place to sleep, I said. Barnes in the rear, I'll need two dollars. The rifle didn't move, and neither did I. That's steep, I said, but seeing as how your accommodations are so luxurious, I suppose I can manage it. He gave me a hoarse laugh. Let's see it then. <clears throat> I dismounted, keeping blue swamp between me and his gun and tossed a couple of coins toward the door. Okay, mister, you can set your mounts loose in the pen and come on back for a plate of beans. Barn was an extravagant term for lean-to strung together from broken parts of other structures. Everything was greasy and salt-ravaged. This was a climate unkind to wood. But it had a hayloft for me to sleep in, which was much better than camping in the frosty dark. <clears throat> the pen was split into two parts, with a milk cow in the back and in the front, 
a donkey and a mare that might once have been a decent mount. I unsaddled Blue Swamp and Patience and put them in the pen. I walked to the door. From a window, <clears throat> man and rifle watched me. Behind him, something moved, a crab-like shadow. The man let me in. Name's Conroy, he said. The missus there is loading up the table. His rifle's name was Sharps. Sharps of the large caliber and long range. <clears throat> he pointed to the Smith & Wesson at my belt. You wouldn't mind hanging that up whilst you eat. I'm not crazy about the idea, I said, but I wouldn't want to be unfriendly. I unbuckled and hung. I still had my hidden bulldog and wasn't about to volunteer it. <clears throat> the house was somewhat warmed by a fireplace that appeared to be a remnant of the previous dwelling. Stitched together blankets nailed to opposite walls divided one dirt-floored room. I assumed that their bed lay on the other side. Conroy was wearing overalls that would need their yearly wash before I could determine color. Mrs. Conroy had the tired face of someone who never has time to stop working. She spooned beef and beans into three bowls. Conroy leaned his rifle on the wall and sat. I sat. She sat. We ate. The beef and beans had an odd fishy taste. <clears throat> a watch chimed. Conroy took out a very nice piece of timekeeping and flipped it open. Letters engraved on the inside were visible. I knew where he had acquired it. The question was whether he found it on Silverberg's already dead body or killed him. <clears throat> with dinner and topics of conversation ended I slung my gun belt over my shoulder and left for the dubious comfort of the barn I laid out my bedroll in the hayloft with my duster for a pillow and my bulldog under it somewhere in the night a neigh from blue swamp mingled with a dream of that strange sand hill awake I opened my eyes. A rustle came from below. Lamplight flickered. The flame set low, but giving enough light for me to see someone crouched over my saddlebags. I called out. A hand holding my Smith & Wesson came up, but I shot first. The person fell into a narrow patch of light. Conroy. I jumped down. He was holding his side. Blood seeped around his fingers. A voice whispered from the darkness outside the barn. Lyle, Conroy, produced a wordless cry. Mrs. Conroy appeared in the doorway and I flattened myself. The crash of the sharps filled the barn. The recoil had knocked her back, but she still held the gun. I got up. Seeing me, she turned and ran. Before taking off after her, I scooped up my Smith & Wesson and its holster. Their latched door needed a couple of kicks. 
The blanket that divided the room flapped as if someone had just gone through. I picked up one of the chairs and hurled it at the middle, then dove for the nearest end. I don't know what I expected would be on the other side, but it wouldn't have been anything close to what confronted me. A stone floor slammed my body. The room I had landed in looked like the entry to a grand mansion. By grand, I mean lots of space, carved stone pillars, dark marble floor, not packed dirt like it should have been. Behind me, the blanket hung. I peered through an arched opening into the next room. Where I had entered was a closet in comparison. Debris studded the marble floor, dust, fragments of masonry and furniture, the desiccated body of a rat. Mezzanines flanked both sides of a long gallery. Something up there moved. I dropped to the floor. The sharps blasted. I felt and heard the bullet crash into a pillar. Shards of marble landed on me. Self-preservation had me up and shooting. I ran to the side from which she had fired. She wouldn't be able to reach me without leaning over the railing. I shook out the spent cartridges and pushed new shells into the cylinder. The other end of the room was several miles off. I started toward it, searching for a way up. My feet stirred the dust. Sweat dripped from my face. I couldn't tell where the heat came from. It just was. A grand staircase jutted into my path. When I looked back, the distance I had walked surprised me. I started up the stairs. They ended at the mezzanine. I could go right or left. I chose the side Mrs. Conroy had shot from. A walkway extended back the way I had come, with a railing on one side and a wall on the other. Paintings decorated the wall, but time had left them murky. Some ways on, my walkway turned to connect with the other side to a stairway leading up. The scrape of a boot on pavement sounded from above. I stopped and waited. The sound of footsteps stopped. I imagined Mrs. Conroy standing there, listening. I could outlast her. I could stay so still that no one. She screamed, a banshee wail of attack, and ran at me. I fired. Red splashed her chest. That sharps went over the rail. I was very happy to see it go. What does it mean to eat someone's cooking and a few hours later have to kill her? Good of her not to have poisoned my dinner. You fixed me a fine plate of beans, Mrs. Conroy. I'll take you back and bury you with your husband if he's dead. I slung her over my shoulders and set off toward the staircase, then down and across the long gallery. Spotting the sharps, 
I dumped Mrs. Conroy's body. I picked the gun up by the barrel and slammed the hammer against the stone floor until I was satisfied that it would take a gunsmith to make it work again. <clears throat> Echoes of clattering faded and I heard something, the sound of many feet on stairs, feet that weren't booted, feet that sounded like bare bones on pavement. A stench of rotting seaweed and wrecked ships descended with the sound. I ran. At the blanket curtain, I paused to look back. In the shimmery distance, shapes moved, low and wide shapes that reminded me of crabs. I pushed through the curtain. <clears throat> Conroy, I thought it was Conroy, sat in a chair. A pile of sand covered his feet, and I caught more of that rotten ocean smell. <clears throat> his head was a nude skull, dry, yellowy-white bone. A revolver lay in his dead hands, dead fleshy hands. Then his skull head turned toward me, and the gun hand lifted. I sprayed my remaining bullets at his face. Bone fragments and smoke filled the air. He dropped his revolver. Something fell from his mouth and struck the revolver, making a metallic clink. I picked it up, a copper disc, with a design scratched into its surface, the shape of Conroy's cattle brand, with that same gash of mouth, like the savage face on the sand hill. I threw it into the fireplace. I stayed long enough to do two things. Take Silverberg's watch from Conroy's pocket and shatter the lit oil lamp against the wall. Night dark still covered the sky, but the burning cabin brightened the barn enough for me to load my things onto patients in Blue Swamp. I left the gate open for Conroy's horse, donkey, and cow to do as they pleased, and off I rode. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we're going to take about a 10, 15 minute break. Please have a drink, pay your bartender some uh, nice tips, and come on back. And we'll hear Victor Laval next. Thank you. Got to read that. All right. Um, May 18th is Grady Hendricks and Alex Irvine. Um, yes. June 15th, Karen Euler and Sam J. Miller. Woo! July 20th, Daniel Brown and Gregory Frost. And August 17th, Veronica Shanos and Richard Butner. And, that's what that's over. and next month, I'm going to be out again. I'm going to be in Italy. <laughs> so Matt will be doing it somehow. Hello. Welcome back to the second half of Fantastic Fiction at KGB. First, we are going to give away some ARCs. That's advanced reading copies of several, hey, show what, you ha what we have. Tell them what you have. Oh, okay, we got- If you're gonna do the whole vinyl white, you have to announce it. Oh. <laughs> All right, here, oh, perfect. Paul Cornell, Rosebud. It's kind of a space opera, but, and it's, it's depress, no, it's not depressing. Um, <laughs> it's, well, it's funny, but it's also horrific at times. It's, it's science fiction, and it's got 
um, some scary. really fascinating characters. It's not scary. A ball of hands and a swarm of insects. Yes. <laughs> Those are the characters. <laughs> That's uh, really selling this. It's true. And then I woke up by Malcolm Devlin. Which just came out about two weeks ago. We gone, he's an Australian, um, a, an English writer who moved to Australia. It's a plague novel, not like this plague, but it's a zombie, maybe zombie plague, and it's really amazing, and it, I highly recommend it. And then last we've got High Times in the Low Parliament. By Which, yes, by oh, Kelly yeah. Robeson, who describes it as a queer, high fantasy buddy novel. <laughs> it's really funny and it's really clever and yes, it's so about politics too. And Ellen Kushner says a great read with all the right ingredients. Okay, yeah we should have read all the quotes. Not this Ellen, the other Ellen. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we're going to give these away and um, the first one we'll give away is, uh, which one should we give away first? Yeah, okay, we have two copies of Rosebud. First question, first person who answers correctly. Um, which, what TV show is he best known for writing for? Paul Cornell. Anyone? Uh, Doctor Who. Say loudly. Doctor Who. Yep, you got it. Okay. We had another one. I think I heard. Oh, you did. Okay. You want Rosebud? You can have Rosebud too. What? We're two. We're two cups. You don't want Rosebud. Okay. <laughs> okay. 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 Um, and all right. And so, did you don't want any of these? Or, no, she can get them anyway, right? Yeah. Okay. Second question we have is, um, I, I know what show, what TV show, <coughs> mentioned Victor Laval's novel in the last week or two? Yell it out. Don't Jeopardy. raise your hand, yell. Jeopardy. Yes, you got it. So which, so which one do you want? So, so which, arc, which arc do you want? Pick one. Oh, I, I would love it, and then I will count. Okay, that's actually the finished book. That one? Oh, what, what was it? Yeah. Victor, what was the question on Jeopardy? You who? Citizen Kane. 
It's not, there's no relation to Citizen Kane whatsoever. Oh, we have one left, okay. Who really, really wants to You had a 100% chance of getting that one. All right, what do we All right. Uh, anyone have a good question for us? <laughs> Who really, really wants this book? It's really good, I'll have to tell you. It's terrific. I really, really want this. Okay, <laughs> give it to him. Give it to him. He's the only one brave enough to say that. Okay, thank you. So our next reader we have is Victor Laval, who is the author of seven works of fiction, including The Ballad of Black Tom, um, which I have to tell you guys um, is coming out as a hardcover from Tour.com, which is very unusual. It'll be, I think it's June, right? Yeah. And there's a new afterword with it, so look forward to that. It's got a different cover, so if you want all those books, you have to collect that one too. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and three comic books. He has been the recipient of a World Fantasy Award, a British Fantasy Award, the Shirley Jackson Award, and the Bram Stoker Award. His most recent novel, The Changeling, is in production at Apple TV, and he's been hanging out on, with the crew the last <laughs> few days, few weeks. So please welcome Victor Laval. touch anything. Okay. Uh, thank you for that introduction. Uh, um, I can touch the light. Right? I can move. Oh, um, I have to say this is, I think, my first reading in like two and a half, three years. Uh, um, so it's just very fun to be back out with all of you um, uh, and in the world um, and out past dinner time at home. Uh, all right. Uh, so what I would love to do um, is uh, I have a, a, a novel coming out in theory in 2023, like uh, fall 2023 or something like that. Um, it's called Lone Women. It's about women homesteaders in Montana in 1915. Uh, and I thought I'd just read the opening chapter, maybe two, depending on how the room's feeling, um, and, um, and just try it out and see, see if it's interesting. Um, there are two kinds of people in this world, those who live with shame and those who die from it. On Tuesday, Adelaide Henry would have called herself the former, but by Wednesday, she wasn't so sure. If she was trying to live, then why would she be walking through her family's farmhouse, carrying an Atlas jar of gasoline, pouring that gasoline on the kitchen floor, the dining table, dousing the settee in the den? And after she emptied the first Atlas jar, why go back to the kitchen for the other one, then climb the stairs to the second floor, listening to the splash of gasoline on every step. Was she planning to live or trying to die? There were 27 black farming families in California's Lucerne Valley in 1915. Adelaide and her parents had been one of them. After today, there would be only 26. Adelaide reached the second floor. She hardly smelled the gasoline anymore. Her hands were covered in fresh wounds, but she felt no pain. There were two bedrooms on the second floor, her bedroom and her parents. Adelaide's parents were lured west by the promise of land in this valley. The federal government encouraged Americans to homestead California, and it was one of the few such invitations that extended to even its Negro citizens. The native population had been decimated, cleared off the property, now it was time to give it all away before the original inhabitants could come back. 
The federal government called this homesteading. Change the D to an L and you might grasp it differently. After 1866, the African Society put out a call to colonize Southern California. The Henrys were among the hundreds who came. They weren't going to get a fair shot in Arkansas, that was for damn sure. Glenville and Eleanor Henry fled to Southern California, grew alfalfa and wild grass, sold it to cattle owners for feed. Glenville followed the work of Luther Burbank, and in 1908, they began growing the botanist's Santa Rosa plums. The fruit tasted of sugar and self-determination. Adelaide had worked the orchards and fields alongside her daddy since she was 10, labored in the kitchen with her mother for even longer, 31 years of her life on this farm, and now she would burn it all down. Ma'am? Adelaide startled at the sound of the wagon man. Good Lord, what is that smell? He stood at the front entrance, separated from the interior by a screen door and nothing more. Adelaide stood upstairs at the threshold of her parents' bedroom. The half-full atlas jar wobbled in her grip. She turned and called over the landing, Mr. Sam, I will be out in five minutes. She couldn't see him, but she heard him. The grumble of an old black man as loud as a thunderclap. It reminded her of her father. That's what you said five minutes ago, Mr. Sam shouted. Adelaide heard the creak of the screen door's springs. A vision flashed before her, Mr. Sam coming to the foot of the stairs and Adelaide dumping the remaining gasoline onto his head. Adelaide reaching for the matches that were in her pocket, lighting one and letting it land on Mr. Sam's head, then combustion. But she didn't want to kill this old man. So she called out to him instead, Have you got my trunk into the wagon yet? Quiet. Quiet. Then the sigh of the screen door being released. He hadn't stepped inside. He called to her again from the porch. I tried, he said, but that thing weighs more than my damn horse. What did you pack inside? My whole life, she thought. Everything that still matters. She looked at the, to the door of her parents' bedroom, then called down one more time. Five more minutes, Mr. Sam. We'll get the trunk in the wagon together. Another grumble, but he didn't curse her, and she didn't hear the sound of his wagon's wheels riding off. For a man like Mr. Sam, this was as close to an okay as she was going to get. Would she really have set him on fire? She couldn't say. But it's startling what people will do when they're desperate. Adelaide Henry turned the handle to her parents' bedroom and stepped inside and shut the door behind her and stood in the silence, the dark. The heavy curtains were pulled shut. She'd done that at dawn, right after she dragged the bodies of her parents inside and put them to bed. Glenville and Eleanor Henry lay together now in their marriage bed, the same place where Adelaide had been conceived. They were only shapes because she'd thrown a sheet over their corpses. Their blood had soaked through the top. The outline of their bodies appeared as red silhouettes. She went to her father's side. The fabric had adhered to his torn skin. After two tugs, she stopped trying to pull back the sheet. She poured gasoline over his corpse from his forehead to his feet. Now Adelaide moved to her mother's side. Eleanor's sheets were pulled up to her chin, hoping to hide the damage done to her throat. She hadn't felt able to pull the shroud over her mother's face. Strange to get squeamish 
about that part, considering all the other damage done to the body. Adelaide tilted the jar above her mother's head, but found she couldn't pour out the last of the fuel. She held it over Eleanor and stared into her mother's open, empty eyes. But she couldn't do it. Adelaide set the jar down and crouched by the bed. Look at this woman who bore Adelaide, this woman who raised Adelaide, this woman who was killed by... She whispered into Eleanor's dead ear, you kept too many secrets. Look what that shame did to you. Adelaide rose and reached into her pocket. The matchbox bore the symbol of the African society, a silhouette of a black man driving a plow. She struck a match and watched it burn. She flung it at the bed where it landed on her father. She turned quickly so she wouldn't see the bodies catch, but she heard it, as if the whole room took a single deep breath. An instant later, she felt heat across the back of her neck, but even after she shut the bedroom door behind her, she felt that her neck still burning. It wasn't the fire that warmed her skin, it was the guilt. On the upstairs landing, her right knee buckled and she went down. Kneeling with one hand on the railing, she'd done it. Behind that door, her parents were burning. Maybe she should stay with them. That's what she considered. Enough gasoline had spilled on her hands, her dress, that it wouldn't take long for her to burn. Just sit down. Don't go out to Mr. Sam and his wagon. Stay still. What kind of daughter would do the things she'd just done? Adelaide rose to her feet but hardly recognized the fact, as if her body wanted to survive even if her soul didn't. She had to, had to hold the stairway railing all the way down. Well, there you are, Mr. Sam said when she stepped out from the screen door. He looked from her to the house. Did he see the smoke yet? Could he hear the upstairs bedroom starting to crackle? His buckboard wagon sat by the porch, horse nearly as malnourished as the man. Adelaide stood six inches taller than Mr. Sam and outweighed him by 40 pounds. No wonder he couldn't lift the trunk. There were handles on either side of the sewered steamer trunk. Adelaide grabbed one end and Mr. Sam took the other. She bent her legs and lifted. Mr. Sam huffed with the strain. Quick now, he said, though he wasn't doing much of the work. She yanked the trunk toward the uh, bed of the wagon and Mr. Sam was pulled along. They reached the wagon, and with one last effort, they set it down in the bed. The wagon sank inches, and all four wooden wheels creaked. Mr. Horse, Mr. Sam's horse took a step forward as if trying to flee the burden. When they stood straight, both Mr. Sam and Adelaide were breathless. Adelaide climbed into the wagon. The only other item she'd brought besides that trunk was her travel bag. It had been packed already, sitting right at the threshold inside the house. Mr. Sam got in beside her on the spring seat. He looked back at the house. Where's your people, he asked. My parents, she said softly. They don't come to see you off? She looked at the house as well. From out here, you wouldn't even know there was a fire growing inside. You would think the people in this farmhouse were living a dream. They're resting, she said. Mr. Sam kept any further questions to himself. He held the reins and gave two clicks with his tongue, and his poor horse pulled and pulled until finally the wagon moved. Adelaide was leaving California with $154, a large sum of money and still hardly enough 
for an entirely new life. But that was all she had, that in her travel bag and her trunk. The farmhouse would burn. Eventually their neighbors, no matter how distance would no, distant, would notice. They'd haul buckets of water, hop, hoping to save something, someone. They would sift through the damage and find only two bodies inside. They would ask where Glenville and Eleanor's daughter had gone. They would send word to the local sheriff. On Tuesday, Adelaide Henry had been a farmer. By Wednesday, she became a fugitive. Shall I read chapter two? (laughs) All right. It's short. Chapter two. I know you. Adelaide and Mr. Sam were an hour into their trip before he said these words, the first one spoken since Adelaide's farmhouse disappeared behind a bend in the road. She hadn't minded the quiet. Queer folk, Mr. Sam continued. That's what they say about the Henrys. Mr. Sam's horse had become accustomed to the weight, not comfortable, but accustomed. The bed of Mr. Sam's buckboard wagon wasn't large, which meant the trunk hardly had room to shift, even as they went uphill or down, a small blessing for the animal. Oh yes, Mr. Sam continued, feeling bolder. He cut his eyes in her direction. I'm not just talking around here. They know y'all in Victorville and Allensworth. She'd hired this man to take her to the port of Los Angeles, a 24-mile ride south. And when she got there, she meant to board a ship. She guessed they had another five hours to go. Five hours more of this. The weariness is what made her speak. And what do they know? she asked. He grinned, began a recitation. Keep to your property. Don't visit with others. Never speak a word in church. Adelaide looked at her hands. The cuts wouldn't heal for days. She tried her best, but she couldn't picture exactly how she'd got them. Not to say she didn't know the cause. Of course she did. But the moment when one nick or scratch appeared had been scrubbed from her mind. There was dinner yesterday evening and the sun coming up at dawn. The time in between had been slipped into a hidden pocket and couldn't be found. It was as if she appeared in the kitchen, her hands covered in cuts, and on the counter there were two jars filled with gasoline. She didn't even remember filling them. I burned the evidence. Adelaide caught herself, a hand literally thrown over her lips. For a moment she thought she'd said the words out loud, but no. She could tell because Mr. Sam still sat there drawing about her family and their reputation in the valley. His lips were moving. No doubt he felt bold enough to insult her family openly now. But she couldn't hear him. Instead, she heard only herself. Every tongue shall confess. She kept her hand over her mouth because she wasn't sure what might come out. The words or the last meal in her stomach. You feeling sick? Mr. Sam asked. She nodded and looked at him with a tight grin. Well, if something comes up, he said, looking toward the horizon, make sure you spill over the side. I keep my wagon clean. Twenty-four miles took half a day, half a day with Mr. Sam. Imagine how tedious that sounds, then double it. (laughs) A funny thing happens when a man thinks he has a woman's company all to himself. He may show a face to her that he would keep hidden if there were even one more person around. He speaks from his secret self. And even though Adelaide had been a part of a family that largely kept to itself, she'd gone back and forth to Victorville and Allensworth, hauling plums to be sold, 
made the journeys by herself since the age of 15 or 16. The necessities of farm life required it sometimes. At the markets or along the roads, she'd encountered many men. The things they said couldn't tell her mother or her father. Their words became like a small bag of stones she carried in one hand, a bother, a nuisance. They made it more difficult to do the necessary things, big or small. She'd travel farther just to avoid certain roads. So Mr. Sam talked bad about her family and did it with impunity because who else was around to shame him? Adelaide wondered what it would feel like to bring a bag of rocks down on this old man's head. By the fourth hour, she passed the time casually imagining all the ways she might murder this spiteful old man. Like right now, one hard push off this wagon and he might break his neck. But then he looked directly at her and said, what you looking at, girl? And the moment passed and Mr. Sam had been spared. (laughs) There were people who would judge her harshly for her thoughts, but those people she felt could fuck themselves. (laughs) So the wagon ride continued. There had been some confusion as they approached Los Angeles. Turns out the port of Los Angeles was located in a town called San Pedro. Mr. Sam learned this at a feed store along the way. His His exact words were, well, that's some foolishness. If the door to the feed store hadn't been open, Adelaide wouldn't have known about the error. Mr. Sam got in the wagon and pretended like he hadn't made any mistake at all. Every tongue shall not confess, apparently. Mr. Sam backtracked for half an hour and soon set them on the proper road. He didn't admit or apologize, only said he knew a faster way to the port. Sure. Calling him out hardly mattered. Getting to the port mattered. She had a ship to catch, and now she worried she might not make it. When they finally reached San Pedro, the city shrank them. Both Adelaide and Mr. Sam felt reduced. On Beacon Street, they passed the San Pedro Bank Building. Its clock tower stood four stories tall. It cast a shadow that crossed the road. It seems foolish, but when they rode through the shadow, Adelaide shivered. Even Sam stopped talking. She'd seen grain silos that tall, but never a clock. The whole town was wired for electricity. A streetcar rumbled through the intersection, carrying 25 people, maybe more. Adelaide and Mr. Sam sat in the wagon and watched the streetcar rattle past. A few of the passengers looked at her, but they didn't see her. They looked through her, past her. They didn't know her, didn't know her family. She was unknown. To some, this might sound terrible, but that was the first moment Adelaide Henry realized she might escape all she'd left behind. Not just the bodies or the fire, but the rumors too. What if she settled here? But six hours from Lucerne Valley wasn't far enough to go. And besides, Mr. Sam, this mouthy coot, he'd know where she'd settled. A man like this savored gossip the way others did her father's plums. When the streetcar passed, Mr. Sam looked at her. Keep going, he asked. For him, the Lucerne Valley was welcome and welcoming. Had she ever felt that way? We're almost there, Mr. Sam. Adelaide gestured forward. Let's keep on. He studied her face as if memorizing something. Queer folk, he muttered. That's what everyone says. He clicked his tongue, and with a snort, his horse took two steps forward. The wagon wheels creaked. 
The trunk shifted as much as it could in the small space behind the spring seat. Adelaide reached back and placed a hand on the trunk as if it might leap from the wagon and flee, as if her touch could calm it. She leaned close. She whispered, almost there. Thanks. at KGB Reading Series. Check out our website at kgbfantasticfiction.org and click on support if you'd like to help keep the series going. Anyway, that's our show. Thanks for listening and see you next month.